0: Today's reading is from John, chapter 16, verses 16 through 24. A little while, and you will no longer see me. And again a little while, and you will see me. Some of his disciples then said to one another, What is this thing he is telling us? A little while, and you will not see me. And again a little while, and you will see me. And because I go to the Father? So they were saying, What is this that he says, a little while? We do not know what he is talking about. Jesus knew that they wished to question him, and he said to them, Are you deliberating together about this, that I said, a little while and you will not see me, and again a little while and you will see me? Truly, truly, I say to you that you will weep and lament, but the world will rejoice. You will grieve, but your grief will be turned into joy. Whenever a woman is in labor, she has pain, because her hour has come. But when she gives birth to the child, she no longer remembers the anguish because of the joy that a child has been brought into the world. Therefore, you too have grief now, but I will see you again, and your heart will rejoice, and no one will take your joy away from you. In that day, you will not question me about anything. Truly, truly, I say to you, if you ask the Father for anything in my name, he will give it to you. Until now, you have asked for nothing in my name. Ask, and you will receive, so that your joy may be made full.
1: You may be seated. Good morning, everyone. Welcome. My name is Pastor Scott. I'm really glad to see you here on Palm Sunday and the start of Holy Week. Uh, Let's pray, and we'll begin. Lord God, thank you so much for a Sunday morning. Uh, a change in seasons, Lord. The uh, signal that the earth is is moving and rotating, and even now, Lord, as we prepare uh, to hear from your words, we prepare for the beginning of Holy Week. We pray once again that you would crack through the veneer of the of the lives that we live, that you would crack through the busyness that you would crack through the distraction you would crack through the grief, Lord that you would crack through the the pieces that we're We're going through the motions. Lord, we want to hear you in fresh ways and new ways. Lord, that we would know the truth of the gospel story for the very first time this morning. In your great name we pray. Amen. Our message today is called Joy in a Little While as we conclude our Building Faith series. I would love you to have your Bibles open to John 16. We are going to do an exegetical Bible study, which means we're just going to look verse by verse at this kind of interesting text for Palm Sunday. Uh, but we learned some new things this week as a teaching team. I'm excited to share them with you. Um, Wednesday night, I got the chance to, um, to preach the gospel at a memorial. And I. Uh, Good friends, um, here in Edmonds, the story I spoke about a couple weeks ago, there was a missing, um, missing mother uh, who they later found as deceased, who left four young boys behind, and on Wednesday night, we had a celebration of life for her. And uh, they filled up this room downtown called Urban Feast. I'd never been there. It was just gorgeous. They said, you know, our mom wouldn't have wanted the graveside or a church. She would have wanted a party. And so they had mud pie and French fries and Coke out of McDonald's glasses uh, or cups because that reminded them of their mother. And it was a beautiful night. And they said, uh, the brother said to me, he said, Scott, we'd love if you'd share reflection with the people. And so I get up and... um, There's there's probably five to six hundred people in this huge room. Huge, beautiful room, beams overhead, candelabras shining down. With a Bible open, and these are the words that I read. In a little while, we'll have joy. John 16. It was the most apropos thing I could share with a bunch of grieving people. The grief is real, but so is joy. In a little while, Jesus says, the truth of the resurrection will change things. And so that that evening, people, you know, oh hey, you know, thanks for sharing that, whatever. I'm like, you know, I just I really just read the Bible. But it has me thinking about your life. If you were to get up in front of five or six hundred people, what would you what would you read? What would you share? What words are true? In your life as disciples all of us in the room are here on a sunday morning because at some level the bible has meant something to us and we're disciples of jesus christ for many decades or for a shorter amount of time what would you say that still is true in the worst of human situations it still is true and there's a powerful thing about grief that it just kind of distills away it kind of burns away the the, the the, the, the everyday that for all of us kind of sits right here and feels so important. One of the things I shared with them because there was a missing persons report for about 24 hours and I asked them to, for the clarity that they felt during that missing person time two weeks ago that life got simpler. We were just looking for a woman and the stuff that we got up and we were worried about didn't mean as much until she was found. Regretfully, she was found in the wrong condition. We're all guilty of living with life right here. And the truth of the gospel story is that no matter what's right here, there is a deeper possibility for truth and ultimately for joy. And I'll, I'll confess to you, it's an audacious claim that if it wasn't in the Bible, that I wouldn't have the confidence I do to declare it. Because the reality that Jesus says is that in a little while I will see you and no one will take away your joy. It's good news this morning. Some of us need a reminder, a dose of of joy and encouragement. Others of us are in great, great places, and we need to just kind of keep stoking that flame of, of, of joyful living. But what Jesus says is in a little while, there will be joy. And so this is what we're looking at today, John 16. And when you think of John's gospel, which is probably the most mystical of all the gospels, it was the last gospel written. What's beautiful about the Gospel of John is that it centers so much in the Holy Week. Nine of, of 23 chapters happen right here, 21 chapters, sorry, nine of 21 chapters, so you know, I'm not a mathematician, but what, some percent I mean, nine chapters happen right here between Palm Sunday and Resurrection Sunday. Because John says, you know, the context of Jesus' birth, it matters, his life of ministry matters, but we wanna to get to the crux of the story the crux of the story in the life of Jesus is that in a little while, because of the power of the resurrection, Jesus' life changes our own. It's amazing. And there's this, there's this just kind of chaotic scene to Palm Sunday. In John 12, the Pharisees say, the whole world has gone after him. We must do something and, and so because there's this popularity and this sweeping movement, because the, cities of, the city of Jerusalem, the streets are just erupted in joy, they concoct this plan to, to frame Jesus. And so Jesus allows himself to say, in a little while there will be joy, and the disciples are like, This is gonna be awesome. Like, we've left everything. I love my fishing business, I love my tax business, I love dad's business. We followed this rabbi, is what people did in this time. We picked our rabbi, we picked our horse, and now they're riding into Jerusalem and they're like, We picked the right horse. It, it, it's coming true. That stuff we saw, Jesus, he's just raised Lazarus. I mean, he he has the power. And disciples are like, This is going to be wonderful. And Jesus says, In a little while, you won't even see me anymore. You don't even understand what's about to happen, but I want to tell you no matter what situations you face, there is joy in the life of the disciple. In a little while. One theologian said, The cross is not for Christians a stumbling block which the resurrection has removed. It is not a defeat of which the effect has been canceled by a subsequent victory. The cross is itself a triumph. What was the devil's worst has become God's best. And so today, with an empty cross, as we look towards Good Friday and Easter morning, we get a look at Holy Week. And our big idea is simply this. In the life of disciples, friends... That we can enter into the resurrection life, which looks a lot like a birthing mother. It looks painful and messy, but in the end, real joy awaits. The resurrection life, the life of the kingdom of God, which Jesus spoke so often, it's much like childbirth, and it's possible, and it's powerful, and it's attainable, and the results are joy. We're going to look at it here in the moments ahead. Let's look at the first First couple of verses of John 16, 16 for, for our context today to so look at the paradigm of the disciples. There's a contrast of paradigm. There's the disciples' paradigm, there's Jesus' paradigm, and then there's the rest of the story. Let's begin with what the disciples saw. Keep in mind, they see victory. They're gathered here on the eve of Good Friday, and they're like, it's all happening. Yeah. Things feel weird because on Sunday, Jesus was a hero, but things on the streets aren't turning out that way. There's, there's tension in the air, but they're gathered with Jesus, and they're saying, but we, we still believe that we've picked the right guy. And so Jesus says in verse 16, a little while, you'll no longer see me. And again, a little while, and you'll see me. And then they repeat it, and Jesus repeats it back. And it's a little bit confusing, quite frankly. It's just kind of a bizarre passage that uh, people, to be honest, theologians kind of argue about this. Is this all about the afterlife? Is this all about Good Friday? Is this about something else? But something that's really interesting here in in verse 16 is Jesus says, a little while you no longer see me, and again a little while you will see me. Now, the original text would have been written in the Greek language, and when you study this in the Greek, although we have an English see, there's actually two different words that the Greeks use when John wrote it in the Greek language. The first is this, you will no longer see me, says Jesus, the first clause is 16, and it's a Greek word, thoreo, it means to contemplate, to consider, or to be interested in. It's it's to see from the eyes. And then Jesus finishes the statement again a little while, and then you will see me. This is where our English language is more limited, but in the Greek, he uses a second word, John does. A second word, horeo, which means to be admitted into a more immediate presence of God. It's a closer look, it's a see that you know and understand. It's a see when you look from the heart. So that's interesting. I didn't know that before this week. A little while you'll you'll see me, you'll threo me, and then a little while you will horeo me. You'll understand more as time goes on. That's good. Because that's kind of true of so much of our lives, right? When we story tell about like, well, tell me your story of faith. Tell me what brought you here this morning. People will say, you know, I, was, you know, I accepted Jesus at this point. Or I, I thought I had a relationship with God. I was raised in a family of faith. Or, or I experienced someone else's faith. And I said, I want a truth like that. We, you know, we, we comprehend something at one level. And then quite often our narrative is we understand more as time goes on both from the highs and the lows. And it's interesting in this Building Faith campaign over the last couple of weeks, we've been talking about this, but quite often the things in which we think might derail our faith are actually places and opportunities for our faith to be strengthened. And looking back, things seem to make more sense. You know, I really loved her and then you know, through that heartache, I realized that God was leading me into a healthier relationship. You know, that pain from my childhood, which was so tangible, and, and there was place I despaired even of life, but, but God led me on this different path, not always easier. But in a little while, there's a way that we go from seeing to seeing because we experience it. And Jesus says, as time goes on, you're gonna understand more, you're gonna know me. And then he says in, in verse 17, and you're following your Bible because this is interesting stuff. We're studying the Bible together, hopefully learning skills that, that kind of pour into your own life, your own mornings with Jesus or evenings or afternoons. Verse 17, then some of his disciples said to one another, what is this thing he is telling us? And they repeat it again, a little while and a little while. And I love that because there's some question marks in this passage. There's some question marks. And... and for me, as a disciple, even as your pastor, i confess to you, there's question marks. I mean, you can't stand with, with four young boys that have lost their mother and not say, there's question marks. You can't sit in my office with people saying, hey, you know, can I just share with you something I'm going through? I'd love you to pray over it. I, there's question marks. Life is sometimes cloudy. And there's times where we say, God, what are you doing here? And even those with Jesus, even those that have followed him for the last three years, they're saying, I don't understand. And I think that's helpful. And I think it's powerful. Because they're saying, like, Jesus, this wasn't in our plans. We had this plan. We were gonna conquer the earth. We were gonna take over. We were gonna do big things. And, and Jesus, your ways are not my ways. And then they say in verse 18, they just sit flat out and say, they're saying, we don't know what he is talking about. This is in your Bible. This is verse 18. This is his disciples saying, we have no clue what Jesus is up to. I think that's helpful. Because your questions about faith, your questions about God, your questions about what's going on in the life of somebody you love, it's a child, it's a parent, it's a coworker, it's a roommate. Like When you have these questions, they become opportunities. Questions become opportunities. Opportunities to just disengage and doubt or to engage the, the person that answers all questions. It's Jesus. I mean, I say that quite often when we teach marriage seminars and stuff, that, that angst and anger and arguments can actually be the beginning point to more health. The most dangerous relationship, we know this, right? The most dangerous relationship is one where apathy is set in. When you stop arguing about things. When you stop having your heart broken from a child not following the Lord. When you stop worrying about people that you love making harsh decisions. Like when the apathy sets in, that's really when things are just kind of over and done with. But questions, when we have questions about what's going on, and we bring these, this discontent, this unrest, we bring these questions to the Lord, they become opportunities for growth. Application in your life, Do you still ask questions of Jesus in your life. You're still like, hey, why is this going on? Do you, where do you take them? Do you disengage and build walls? Or do you take them to your Father? Jesus, I want to understand more of why this is happening in the world, in my neighborhood, in my home, in my heart. No matter where we look, we've got to keep asking questions. And the the disciples' questions really arise from two mistaken promises that they have given as a promise of Christ, and it's actually, Jesus is is contrasting that here, and I think they're helpful for us as well. So the mistaken promise, number one, that the disciples have of Jesus, and it's indicative of our own pursuits of Christ as as well, is that there's a mistaken promise of comfort. The disciples think that it's going to be more comfortable than it really is. And turn back, if you would, back to John 12. Now in John 12, if you're looking at your own Bible, John 12, verse 16, these things his disciples did not understand at first. But when Jesus was glorified, then they remembered these things were written of him. It's talking about Mary anointing Jesus and there's a little bit of foreshadowing here. The writer of John obviously has the gift of the whole story. He's written this almost six decades after the the death and resurrection of Jesus. The the gospels were mostly oral, mostly passed down and then the four writers actually recorded them, John to be the last. And look look at verse 42 of chapter 12. Verse 42, nevertheless, many, even of the rulers believed in him But because of the Pharisees, they were not confessing him for fear that they would be put out of the synagogue, for they loved the approval of men rather than the approval of God. That's an incredible piece of scripture. That's an incredible piece of scripture that the people, even rulers, believed in him But because of fear of disrupting the the status quo, fear of leaving the comfortable, they were not confessing him. They didn't want to be kicked out of the synagogue. They didn't want to be kicked out of the place of social life. They didn't want to stop being comfortable. That's unbelievable. We can flip back to 16. People who were in the presence of Christ himself that didn't always pursue him because they didn't want to let go of the comfortable. And Jesus tells them there's no promise of a pain-free life. We touched on this last week. There's this idol that we have as believers that we will have just weakness and then just strength. We preached out of 2 Corinthians 12, but the actual text is, when I am weak, then I am strong. Life of believers need to hold both things in two hands. And now Jesus is saying, you're going to know joy, but you're going to know grief as well. It's an idol that life will always be comfortable. And the second mistaken promise the disciples make, that I just, I make the same mistake in my own life as well, is of certitude. The second mistaken promise is certitude, that they will always be certain of what Jesus is doing in their lives. Verse 17, what is this thing he is saying? none of us are particularly great with ambiguity, and Jesus is just telling his disciples right here, face to face, things are going to get confusing for a little while. And if those that follow Jesus around, that sat and had dinner with him, have questions of him and are uncertain at times, it, it lets us off the hook. Of course there's times that we don't know exactly what Jesus is doing. But we can still believe that Jesus is the way. In John 14, Thomas says, Lord, how do we know the way? What does Jesus' response? I am the way. We don't get the certain path. Nobody, nobody hands you when you become a believer the map. Here's the map, and you're gonna get married at this point. You're gonna, you're gonna you know, struggle with this, and you're gonna have victory here, and it's gonna end here. There's no map. It's just a person of Christ saying with uncertain things and with heartbreaking situations, I will be your light. I will, I will be your light. And so there's practical application here. When we hit things in our life that hurt or are uncertain, when we're uncomfortable and uncertain, those are places to pray more. Flat out, fill in the blank. Lord Jesus, I don't understand why blank is happening. Will you help me understand? Lord Jesus, I don't understand why this pain exists in their life or my life or her life, but will will you just be comfort here? These become opportunities for growth. As we're asking questions, we keep turning to the answer of all questions, who's Christ himself. And we bear witness. I started doing this about six months ago, and it's been so powerful. I keep this little thing in my Bible, just prayers. Prayers for my family, prayers for some of you. This is highly confidential. But I pray over this every morning, and then I go back sometimes, and I'm like, God, you moved in this specific situation. There's check marks here. There's check marks. Not because anyone faithful prayed enough, but because God delivered a specific situation. I know that's hard to hear because some of you are in really long, unresolved stories. I just want to keep challenging you to take your prayers to the Lord that he might answer them. Jesus again spoke to him, I have the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. And if you've done any boating in Puget Sound or up and down the coast of British Columbia, Alaska, you'll know, right? Lighthouses aren't theoretical. And you don't always need them. But when you need one, they're lifesavers, they're game changers. I mean, there was a Sunday where I I preached at Bethany North, I hopped my truck, I drove, caught the last ferry, drove all night, parked my truck, there was a boat waiting for me. I I was on Vancouver Island, I needed to get to the island where I was going. I had no, I I had a compass. I had a depth sound I didn't even have a GPS. I was scared, I was lost. It was the middle of the night and there was a light. And as long as I kept that light on my left side, it was, it was a path and then I knew I got around Haddington Island and then I could, I could take another waypoint and, and follow other lights. Friends, where is your light home? That's Jesus. That's great if that's your answer this morning. It rolls off the tongue easier than it rolls out of our hearts. Jesus says, in a little while you'll see me, but in a little while longer you'll know me. And so for those of us in the, in the room this morning that just need a dose of, of comfort or certitude, and we want Jesus to resolve a specific situation right here, Jesus is asking us instead, I'll be your light home. I'll be your light home, and things are going to be fuzzy for a while. And they always will, right? Even when you look back, like, oh, if there's this one situation got resolved, that then it would. There's just there's going to be other other things we face. Jesus says, "I'll be your light," and so he contrasts the disciples' paradigm, and then Jesus, in verses 19 through 22, he takes a turn. He gives them his paradigm. Verses 19 through 22, this is the second point of our outline, the Jesus paradigm, which contrasts the disciples paradigm that was all about comfort and certainty. And I don't know about you, but that's just very uh, very convicting for me because I spent a lot of my life here wanting to be more comfortable, more certain. And Jesus says, I have a different paradigm. In verse 19, the NASB says that Jesus knew they wished to question him. Jesus knows hearts. Now, I'm not sure what, what version of the Bible you're studying. Keep in mind, all these English translations, they're a translation from the Greek, and each, each version of the Bible has a committee where they wrestle over specific words, and so we preach out of the NASB, some of us on staff, because it's some say that the closest to the Greek translation, the downside of the NASB is at times it doesn't do gender inclusion, so it's, it's writing to men and really speaking to all of us as believers in Christ. But in the NASB, verse 19 says, Jesus knew they wished to question him. Jesus knows their hearts. Again, that gives us comfort. Okay, though I wish this other situation be resolved, I know that I've got a Savior that knows my heart. And then verse 20, Jesus says, truly, truly, or very truly, or amen, amen, I say to you, you'll weep and you'll lament, but the world will rejoice. You will grieve, but your grief will be turned into joy. Grief changed into joy. And this has been this theme that's been repeated in the Building Faith series, but this is the reality of believers, that these these two things, grief turning into joy, one won't be fully complete before the other fully begins. Friends, we don't worship joy, but rather joy is a result of our worship. We don't worship joy. We don't worship comfortable situations. We don't worship certitude. We worship Jesus Christ. And when we do, we find joy in those places so that even when the things that I'm facing are challenging, we believe that a deeper joy awaits. Because we worship a God who promises at times a difficult journey. A difficult journey. You will weep and lament, Jesus says. And this at a level seems paradoxical. It's not. It's what philosophers call a dialectic. And more of the, the, the Kant uh, dialectic. If you're a philosopher in the room, you're like, okay, I'm comfortable with this. The, the, a dialectic is two different ideas, both being true. And the interplay between these two ideas, this dialectic produces a new synthesis, a new truth. We talked about this last week, that it's not past tense weakness and then present tense strength. We, we spend a lot of time waiting for that. No, all of us in the room, weakness and strength. This morning's text, Grief and Joy. This is the dialectic of the Christian experience. We will have strength, but we'll also know weakness. Jesus says you'll have new birth, but you're also gonna know pain. You're gonna experience light, but you'll also know darkness. You'll experience zoe life, but you'll, for far too many of us in the room, also know death. We'll know incredible highs and heartbreaking lows. And you're like, yeah, that's, that's kinda true. That's the, that's the experience of the believers. From the cross, the center point of Roman pain, comes the resurrection. We were studying this week with all the pastors, and, and Richard, I believe it was, who reminded us of this, of this poem. And this comes from, legend says, a Confederate soldier who, who fell in, in the field of battle, who, who understood this dialectic. And the result of this soldier's prayer is ultimately death. We don't need to be distracted there. Do we have this slide available, the slide of a Confederate soldier? I think this is powerful. You can find this online. I asked God for strength that I might achieve. I was made weak that I might learn humbly to obey. I asked for health that I might do greater things. I was given infirmity that I might do better things. I asked for riches that I might be happy. I was given poverty that I might be wise. I asked for power that I might have the praise of men, but I was given weakness that I might feel the need of God. I asked for all things that I might enjoy life. I was given life that I might enjoy all things. I got nothing that I asked for, but everything I hoped for. Almost despite myself, my unspoken prayers were answered. I am among all men most richly blessed. I got nothing I asked for, but everything I hoped for. I don't know how that strikes you this morning, but hopefully that's encouragement. But Jesus, in the life of following him, for the people that loved him the most, he says, lament and pain is real, but so is my joy. And so in verse 22, Jesus gives us four promises that we're going to go through here quickly because these are our red letters of Christ. This is the promises. What what, what are we going to experience in life? Verse 22, it's all here. Four promises Jesus gives us in verse 22. Therefore, you will have grief. Friday night. We're going to mourn as a community. We're going to gather at Nathan Hale High School. Come and and celebrate and mourn Good Friday with us. The life of a Christian disciple is absolutely that we will know grief, both this coming Friday and on Wednesday night with my friends and the situations that I get the opportunity to be your pastor through. You know this in some regards better than I. You know that Jesus doesn't give free passes. We'll have grief. And then Jesus says but I will see you again. The second clause of of verse 22, but I will see you again. And I love that because he's not saying, you'll see me again, though that's what happens on, on resurrection morning. Jesus says, I will see you. Jesus takes the active step. He's saying, faith is not so much the muscle in our arms, but the flexibility in our knees. Will we allow ourselves to be seen by a father? There's a vulnerability to being seen. There's a weakness of being seen. This happens in our marriages. The best marriages say, I'm going to let you see me in my brokenness, and my need, and in my insecurity. I want you to see me as God sees me, and that's a vulnerable, scary place to be. But the strength of a disciple is not the strength of our arms. It's the flexibility of our knees. Jesus says, I will see you again. And then Jesus says this. I love this. I mean, this is where it's just fun. Like, I'm just going to read the Bible, and we can just write notes together. The third thing Jesus says is, I will see you, but, but you will rejoice. You will rejoice. You will rejoice. Your heart will rejoice. And that's encouraging, because there's a lot in the world not to rejoice over. But the promise of Jesus it's not just that pain is real, and some of you are like, oh, yeah, you know, yeah, it's all pain. It's the joy is real. And some of you are like, yeah, it's all joy, and others in the room are like, no, it's not. It's this, it's this dialectic. Jesus is saying, you're going to know the grief, but the joy is real. You can rejoice. When I see you, joy is real. And then the last part here that Jesus says is no one will take it away. Verse 22, the last clause, no one will take your joy away from you. No one will take it away. How good is that? How encouraging is that? Because we face situations where we, you know, we feel happy, we feel not happy. It's more of a fleeting emotion. But joy seems to be deeper rooted on our foundation. And she's saying, when your foundation is me, that even when you're in situations that hurt, they're situations you don't understand, they're not comfortable, they're uncertain, but the reality is, the reality is, is that the, no one will take your joy away. And that's when we're in the worst of situations, it becomes a a cry. Lord Jesus, you promised to see me. You promised that no one would steal my joy, and I've got no joy left. So Jesus, I need you to deliver again. No one will take your joy away. Is that our foundation as this people? It needs to be our foundation. We used to live in this 100-year-old house closer to downtown, and we got ready to sell it. And the first person that came out, he's like... You got cracks in your foundation, son. All right, well, do we put some caulk on that or what can we do? He's like, no, no, uh, I'll send some some bidders out, but you know, if you got cracks in your foundation, this is tremendously expensive. And the first guy came out, and guess what? He was tremendously expensive. He had a $100,000 fix. We're going to jack the house up, we're going to take out the windows, we're going to pour a new foundation. And I'm like, ugh. And he said this, like, you, you've done the kitchen, and you did a bathroom, and there's paint on the side and flowers out front, but if the foundation's not solid, you got nothing. Well, luckily, we found another option. It was a little bit more like caulk, but it wasn't. It was an epoxy, and they fixed it, and it's still standing, Lord willing. Thank you, Jesus. But your foundation. Well, that's a helpful metaphor to me, because, yeah, you know, it's like, oh, I'm gonna, I'm gonna redo the bathroom up here, but if our, if our core that we're basing our life on isn't strong, we've got nothing. And Jesus is saying, there's things you'll face that'll make you uncomfortable and uncertain. I'll be, your, I'll be your foundation. No one will steal that joy. And then in verse 23 and 23rd, 24, sorry, we get the rest of the story. This is the third point of our outline, verse 23. Jesus says this first. He says, in that day you'll not question me about anything. Truly, truly, I say to you. Second time he said truly, truly. When Jesus says truly, truly, you got to pay attention because like Jesus kind of grabbing him like, I really want you to hear this point. Truly, truly, I say, if you ask the Father for anything in my name, he will give it to you. We can pause there because that rattles us. It's not consistent with our experience for many of us. But Jesus says this, and it's a very practical application. The first really practical application I want you to leave with today. The practical application, number one, prayers in Jesus' name get answered. When we pray in Jesus' name, then we can receive what he offers us. I started thinking about this week, and I was realizing, I I pray a lot, and I pray for you sometimes, but... I don't always pray in Jesus' name. There's a lot of Scott in my prayers. But scripture says that when we pray in Jesus' name, that he'll he'll beget that power to us, that there's power in taking on the name of Jesus. And so that becomes very practical at 11. When we're facing difficult situations, our prayers need to be, Lord Jesus, in your name, Jesus, I need your comfort. Lord Jesus, in your name, I need your power. Lord Jesus, in your name, I need some hope. And your name. You know, when Heather and I got married, she had this unfortunate maiden name, Eifert. If you slow it down and think about junior high kids, you're like, oh yeah, I can see where that's probably not perfect all the time. And so we got married and and she took on my name. And even that, some of you like, you know, some people now share a name or take a middle name or uh, take, take her name. And so that's, you know, whatever that is tradition, don't get hung up on that. I'm not advocating. That's the only way to do it. But the two becoming one flesh, taking on a name is what happens when we believe in Jesus Christ. Jesus says, you have my name, so use it. Not when you, you know, knock your knuckles on something or when your team doesn't make the sweet 16, but use my name for power. Our prayers can be answered when you say, Jesus, in your name, though I'm asking for one thing, Lord Jesus, in your name, I want to know you more. There is power in the name of Jesus. And someone made this comment to me this week. They said, you know, it's been easy for this church to get big. It's going to be much harder for it to get strong convicting. Are we people of prayer believing in Jesus' name that Jesus is doing something in the world? Even in the situations look messy, we believe in a God who raised his son from the dead. And in his name, he still answers prayers into the lives that we live. And then on verse 24, we get this final promise that joy is this absolute reality. In verse 24, Jesus says, these things I've spoken to you, I'm sorry, that's 25. Until now, you've asked for nothing in my name. Ask and you'll receive so that your joy may be made full. Deeper than happiness. Deeper than whatever fleeting emotions, whatever whatever thing we're excited about, that the joy of Jesus, that our joy may be made full. Fully joy. Joy is the fruit of the Christian life. When we pursue Christ, that, there, that even though we don't always feel joy or always happiness, there needs to be this trajectory that when our life has been marked by Jesus, it has to yield fruit in joy. I mean, do you know that that's actually what the Greek word for gospel means? It means, we translate it as the good news, but what it actually means is this. Uh, it means a joy message. The, the Greek word for gospel is euangelion, and the you there means joy, and the angelion in the Greek means message. So the gospel literally means a joy message. That's good, right? A joy message. That means that whenever whenever I face trials and tribulation, no matter what pain from my past or in my future, no matter how I journey, that, that the gospel of joy is real because Jesus says I'll never walk alone. That we believe in a message of joy. There should be a message of joy in our lives. Are we known as God's people for what we're for and not just what we're against? What are we for? For the resurrection of a Savior who brings joy into the harshest situations that in a little while, no matter what people struggle with, in a little while they will be seen by their maker, Jesus. And their seeing with their eye will become deeper. They will see in their faith in a deeper way. Their joy will be made full This is the second practical application I'd really love you to leave with today. The joy isn't just a conclusion at the end of the story. It's not just a result when we get to heaven. It needs to be a trajectory our life is pointing towards now. Jesus said in, in verse 33 of John 16, in the world you have tribulation, but take courage, I've overcome the world. God has created us to be receptacles of beauty and of joy. That's what Dostoevsky said in his book, The Idiot, that beauty will save the world. And he's talking about the love of Christ. When Christ sees us, there will be beauty and there will be joy. And even when things feel very messy in the present tense, we believe that our joy can be a trajectory our life is pointing towards. And it happens, quite frankly, in a little while. Peter knew this better than anyone. Peter the Rock... Peter, the one who said, Jesus, we would never deny you. And on the night on which Jesus was betrayed, it was Peter doing the betraying. And later on in his gospel, 1 Peter 5.10, Peter writes this. He says, and the God of all grace, who called you to his eternal glory in Christ, after you have suffered a little while, will himself restore you and make you strong and firm and steadfast. It's It's a little while. It's a journey that we live full of dark nights and and beautiful sunrises and of hard things and, and wonderful joys. What does your life speak to? We've put a microphone in your hand and there's 600 people wanting to know how you proclaim this to be true, this gospel of Jesus in the midst of a lot that's uncertain. And some of you are like, oh, that's... I'm still sorting my stuff out. I I wouldn't speak to anyone about anything. We're going to be talking about this as we study Acts extensively after Easter. Your life already preaches. Your life already speaks to that which you believe. So what do you believe? And how is your life testifying towards that? You're saying your grief will be real. But the joy of the resurrection is a truth you can bank your life on. And so this week, as we step into Holy Week, and I I know it's the busiest time, people are like, I'm I'm working on my gardens, and you know, where roommates are starting to like, we're thinking about barbecues, and we're setting travel schedules, and there's so many youth, soccer, football, games, you know, I mean, just we're all just kind of running, but this is Holy Week, friends. As believers of Jesus, it starts today. May Jesus this week, be encouraging you. Questions? He can handle them. Places of encouragement? Jesus saying, I'm for you. Places of heartbreak and disengagement? Jesus says, I want to hear from you. He's saying, in a little while, no matter what grief that you're going through, no matter what challenges you face, there is also joy available through the presence of your Holy Father, Jesus Christ. Will you pray with me now? Lord God, thank you so much for sending your son, your son to ride into town on this day over 2,000 years ago and to, to break bread with the people he loved and to explain that grief and joy go together hand in hand in the life of disciples and to say that there's pieces of our lives even now That we see with our eyes and we don't understand with our heart. And Jesus is is telling his people then, he's reminding his people this morning that we will know in a little while the joy of his life in us. Lord, we don't want to be Christians just pointing towards the end of life. Lord, we want a trajectory of joy in our singleness and in our marriage in our no-kids status and house full of little people, in our empty-nester status or in our last stages of life, Lord. And whatever, in whatever stage of life we gather at this morning, Lord, we want to be people that you're seeing. No, not for our muscled arms or strong backs that just work and work and work, but people on bended, flexible knees, coming to you with specific prayer requests. Jesus, in your name, we want to, we want to understand your power and your fullness. We want to know your joy. We want our life to sing to the world around. Yeah, we'll know grief, but we also know joy. And his name is Jesus Christ. And we're going to spend our life building our homes on that foundation. No matter what what storms come our way. In your heavenly name we pray, amen.